For the following episode, I must include trigger warnings pertaining to the discussion of suicide, murder, and the AIDS crisis of the 1980s and 90s. When Kath Weston wrote her chapter on gay kinship in Naturalizing Power, Essays in Feminist Cultural Analysis in 1995, she noted the heteronormative, socially pervasive notions of what differentiated close friendships from familial bonds. In addressing these observations, she wrote, Procreation determined true kinship, and what was genuine was not subject to change. Weston's critique of these norms surpassed those framing kinship, in the nuclear family sense, as Eurocentric, but suggested that perhaps what the West considered true kinship wasn't even representative of the modern Western family at all. It was in San Francisco that Weston found her evidence of this, as she began to document the lives of LGBT plus individuals who held their queer peers in regard as their mothers, fathers, and siblings within what would come to be called a chosen family. Welcome to the second episode of Slash Queer. You're here with me, your host, Georgie Williams. In order to understand what queer kinship looks like, the Slash Queer podcast has been taken on a tour through Indianapolis, Chicago, and San Francisco over the past four weeks. Initially, my intention was to address political resistance and queer social bonds within one episode, but upon conducting the interviews included in this episode, I felt that these two matters could not be condensed into one episode without omitting essential context and framing for these subjects. Thus, these subjects have been split into two separate episodes under the umbrella of visible queerness. In addressing what queer kinship looks like, how it manifests and what it represents socially, it seems important to acknowledge how, although queerness is inherently political, queer kinship can and does form outside of explicit matters of politics for many individuals. Our ability to find and form families should not have to be exclusively perceived as a political statement. Queer kinship is a matter very dear to my heart. Like many of my LGBTQ peers, I have faced rejection, abuse, and neglect at the hands of a family member. I have been estranged from my biological mother for almost seven years due to her response to me coming out at 15 years old. The trauma of losing family in the process of coming out or being outed against your will affects us all differently, but I am aware that I am not alone in stating that the rejection I experienced encouraged me to reach out to others who were vulnerable if only to step in and be the kind of maternal figure I myself may have needed in those moments of vulnerability. Thus, I have become the matriarch of my own adoptive queer family. I have been the chosen maternal figure of my adoptive son for six years now, and he in turn plays a parental role to other younger queers. As part of this role, I have, to varying degrees over time, taken my share of the responsibility for his mental health, his physical health, including his diet, his engagement in education and personal development, and his emotional growth from a teenage boy to a young adult. This is now a man who can pick me off my feet when he comes to visit his mother. This role has allowed me to find purpose, develop important bonds with my queer kin, and become the kind of person I would have wanted to have been there for me during the emotional violence of my own early years as a queer adolescent. Queer kinship, 
for my chosen family has been about both survival and love, with the latter making the former more feasible in a hostile social climate. It was during my trip to Purdue University in Indianapolis as a visiting speaker that I found the inspiration I was looking for for the second episode of this podcast. Having been offered a tour of the university's LGBTQ center, I was awestruck by the warmth of the space. This place boasts study areas, a kitchen area with food available to students, a myriad of queer resources, 24-7 access to safe sex materials, and even a canvas hung on the wall which was designed by the iconic drag queen Sasha Velour and painted by the students of Purdue. This was a space within which queer youth had a place to come together, to bond, to be social and communal, away from the pressures of the outside world. There was a congeniality amongst the students which, as a graduate, I envied. I had not had the fortune of being able to find a space such as this during my own studies. There was a familial energy to the space, a space which fed, sheltered, and supported its young people. Having already planned a research trip to Chicago that weekend, I decided to start scoping out who best could provide a better idea of what it means to be familial as a queer individual. As it happens, Chicago is one of the best places to explore queer kinship. And when it comes to educational resources regarding LGBTQ family dynamics, the Chicago Leather Archives and Museum takes the cake. For those of you less familiar with these circles, the term leather is largely used as an umbrella term to include all BDSM and kink-related communities. Gary Wasden, the executive director of these archives, had a lot to say on the matter of leather communities and kinship. If you look at like the history of leather and the sort of development of leather community, it largely arose out of people looking for connections to others, seeking out people who were like them or who in some way shared some sense of their values and their interests. And uh, again, wearing leather in many ways was a signifier of who I am uh, and what I value. And I could look for that in, in others. And one of the sort of earliest manifestations we saw of this was the formation of leather groups, often calling themselves motorcycle clubs. And uh, the self-disclosed irony of motorcycle clubs with no motorcycles, but groups of, of people would come together, leather people, and create organizations. Uh, there were uh, often social clubs, mostly social clubs for, for many, but just a chance to get together with other people like them. And, you know, it's something that's replicated in almost all facets of the human experience of wanting to build those bonds. And while it wasn't necessarily true for each individual, we certainly know that many people who were doing this didn't necessarily have that family unit, didn't have that connection with other people. And, you know, it's really that concept then of chosen family of the people that I sought out 
and made that conscious decision of these are the people I want to have a connection with. These are the people who I want to be my family. And you see that really strong throughout the leather community. And those clubs, those motorcycle clubs and other leather organizations have really long, rich histories of providing those opportunities for people and creating not just, again, the social connections, which were great, you know, friends, sexual partners, um, just opportunities to have that socialization aspect, but also caring for each other and just playing that role, again, that many of our biological families might do of taking care of each other when we're sick and when we have problems or stress in our lives. Many of those clubs were decimated in the 90s and early 2000s by AIDS and lost many, many of those members. So a lot of the clubs are no longer in existence. Just the few people who survived were exhausted and tired, and a lot of clubs are gone. But some still exist. The Centaurs Motorcycle Club in the D.C. area is celebrating its 40th anniversary next year. So, you know, there are a number of them that continue today and still you know, have largely that same role of providing community, providing family connections for others. What different kinds of social power dynamics have historically existed within these circles? Do we see replications of paternal, maternal, fraternal or sororal bonds within these communities? So within the leather communities, we, we absolutely, I think, recreate the kinds of connections that we find really in any social circles, in any family circles. And it's somewhat different for each person, but you know, people find their niche, they find their role, something that meets their own personal needs, but also meets the needs of their communities. And people identify uh, in different ways. I myself identify as a leather daddy, and I'm very a daddy in my community with my friends, with my partners. And that's a little bit different than just a sort of friendship or even partner role. And that it includes kind of a mentor and caretaker aspect to it that is very parental uh, for many. And you certainly see that happen, you know, throughout communities. Uh, you have leather boys, you have leather sirs. And in that respect, that each has a slightly different way that that they relate to and connect with other people. And they're taking, in many instances, these identities, these relationships are taking their their genesis from the heteronormative world in many respects, but also kind of reinventing it and making it fit for us. And it's one of the wonderful aspects of the empowerment, I think, that comes from being a part of a leather community is that you have the opportunity to make this whatever you want it to be. And it's okay that it's different for everybody. And you have people at really all points in the spectrum uh, of how they connect and relate to others. So it can be very different. It can be very vanilla and very traditional for one person, but very kinky and very not for, for someone else, uh, you have people in, you know, poly relationships that can be very complex on the surface. When you first look at it, you might have someone who identifies as a leather sir that has a husband, that has a daddy, uh, that has a boyfriend or 
a leather boy, and then they might have leather pups. And all of those are slightly different, and it can sound really complicated, but when you see it in action, when you participate in it, or even when you're just adjacent to it, it just looks like, you know, a bunch of people who care for each other and have found a way to both accomplish their own life goals and to get something out of for themselves that satisfies a need for themselves, but also that is helping others and connecting with others. So I think one of the true pleasures that comes from being in a community is that freedom to create whatever kind of connections you need or want and to create whatever kind of family you need or want. addressing the idea of queer joy with a lot of my interviewees, mm -hmm. which is a very subjective term. So based on your perspective, do you think queer joy was experienced by many individuals who engaged in these circles and continue to do so? What did queer joy look like? How did it manifest based on your definition of what that is? You know, I think we are surrounded by queer joy. Uh, and to some extent, I think we always have been. I don't think we always acknowledge it uh, and we sometimes get distracted by the angst and the drama and the stress that goes hand in hand uh, often with this but you know certainly it's something that I experience and as part of my job you know I'm out in the community quite a lot um, and going to leather events throughout the year all over the country and I see people who I see maybe three or four times a year and we jokingly sort of refer to them as as family reunions but that is really what they are <laughs> it is a joke that is quite serious uh, at its core and we then post event often refer to it as event drop because people go back uh, and have that sort of moment of sadness uh, of leaving that behind and i think that's ultimately what it is a reflection on is that being together with each other uh, and seeing each other and having a weekend of bonding with leather brothers leather sisters is a, a true expression of that queer joy and i think anytime we're with people in our community it's that moment when we can sort of turn off the rest of the world and truly experience that queer joy but probably one of the things that immediately pops into my head when i hear queer joy is this photograph uh, there are a couple of photographs that have been circulating lately that someone found that were from the 50s and it was a gay wedding uh, in the 1950s and you look at these photos and everyone who sees them describes them the same way is that it's a group of men who you can just see the joy on their faces and they're ecstatic and it's a wedding uh, and you can see you know the grooms kissing there's a minister there officiating and it's a good reminder that even in a time that is so immensely challenging for a gay man that here's this moment captured in photographs of absolute 100% pure queer joy. And people are trying to figure out who these people are to track them down and find them. But right now they're anonymous. And it is that moment that's good to remind us today and to step back from our own lives and look at the experiences we have and realize that, yes, we live in a country right now that is 
terrifying. And we see oppression, we see suicide and murder of our trans family members. There's so much happening that is awful, but looking inside that, we find those moments of queer joy. We have to, because if we can't find those moments of queer joy, we're not going to survive all of the other bad stuff. For those of you who wish to see those photographs, as I so eagerly did, they have been made available in the gallery for this episode on the Slash Queer website. Gary's insight into the kinship amongst those engaging in leather circles was both fascinating and unexpectedly wholesome. The nurturing aspect of BDSM and kink communities, and how these communities could facilitate queer joy, reassured me that these non-normative family dynamics may be as widespread and pervasive as I had hoped they might be within parts of the LGBTQ population. However, as part of exploring what kinship looks like in queer communities, I felt it was pertinent to collect multiple perspectives from individuals in differing queer circles. And, given Kath Weston's aforementioned research, it seemed like the next stop on the journey couldn't be anywhere else but San Francisco. Arriving in San Francisco, it truly feels like there is no better place in the world that one could go to observe queer kinship. When you stand at the rainbow crosswalks of the Castro, the queer hub of the city on a busy weekday, you will easily find yourself in the company of couples, throuples, and other families whose queerness is both visible and being openly celebrated. The queer history of San Francisco is well known, but at times, integral factors in the development and preservation of that queerness have been overlooked in mainstream explorations of said history. In both this episode and episode three, I will be including segments from interviews with various members of the international activist group known as the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Originating in San Francisco 40 years ago, the group are easily spotted in public areas due to their visual presentation as drag nuns, usually with white painted faces and elaborate headpieces. The sisters are infamous around San Francisco, but unfortunately, their work outside of the city has not been so widely recognized. To introduce the sisters to you, I was fortunate enough to have Sister Roma introduce them for me. Sister Roma is the international ambassador for the sisters, and has been a member for 33 years. She holds the title as the most photographed nun in the world, and is a self-described activist, fundraiser, supermodel, and icon. And having met her in the flesh, I am more than happy to vouch for these descriptives. She was kind enough to provide me with a crash course on what the establishment of the sisters looked like back in 1979. Well, it's really interesting because the sisters actually started in San Francisco when a group of like five friends got together on Easter Sunday weekend and they had borrowed these nuns' habits from a convent in Iowa and under the pretext of doing a production of The Sound of Music, which is a complete lie. And they looked around the Castro and everybody was sort of like this, they called it the Castro clone. They all looked like the Marlboro man, like mustaches and leather jackets and jeans and everybody was the same. And these guys were so bored that they decided to throw on these nuns habits and just go out and fuck with people. So they went to the Castro and the mission and out to the 
to the nude gay beach. And our one of our founders, sister vicious power hungry bitch, Ken Bunch, likes to say that everywhere they went they caused emotional car wrecks. So afterwards they got back and they were just kind of like, what just happened? And then a couple other friends joined them and they did it again and they realized that they were onto something like it because it was just really having such a big impact on people. They didn't really know what it was, but they got together and they came up with the name, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And they even wrote our vows, which are to promulgate universal joy and expiate stigmatic guilt. That was in 1979 and in just a few short years, HIV and AIDS started to ravage the community. And that's when the sisters really found their purpose. Because there was a there was so much fear and stigma around HIV and AIDS, and a lot of people were saying that because it was uh, attacking and killing gay men and prostitutes and intravenous drug users, that it was killing all the right people. And there was sort of a sentiment that it was a, a punishment uh, for sin. And the sisters were like, you know what, fuck that. That is ridiculous. It's a virus. One of the sisters was a registered nurse, Sister Florence Nightmare. And they rallied together, and they came up with the world's first ever safer sex pamphlet called Playfair that we still produce today to help people, to educate people about HIV and AIDS and to protect our community. And the sisters were the first group ever to hold a fundraiser because our community was, people in our community were dying and they needed money, they needed practical care. So we were the first group ever to hold a fundraiser to, to raise money for people who were sick and dying from HIV and AIDS. When I came around in 1987, there was still a lot of fear and stigma around HIV and AIDS. When I left my hometown of Grand Rapids, Michigan, whenever you leave a smaller place for a bigger city, people quite often say, you'll be back. One of the other things that I heard from some of my gay friends and other people was, you'll get AIDS. Because they didn't know. All they still hadn't hit my hometown yet, and they thought it was something that just happened in the big cities. So I came to San Francisco, and there was a bit of AIDS hysteria around it for me. I mean, we always checked our tongues to make sure that we didn't have white spots and were we having night sweats. It was a real thing, but it turned out that I couldn't have moved to a better place because groups like the Sisters were actually tackling HIV and AIDS head-on. And the Sisters and our allies in the community taught the rest of the world how to deal with a plague with compassion and practical care. So that's one of the things that I'm most proud of because when we started our ministry and men were covered in Kaposi's, uh, these big purple spots all over their faces and bodies, they lost hundreds of pounds and, and were like walking dead. And they lost their homes and their jobs and their friends and their families. And they were so alone that they hadn't had really any human contact because everybody was afraid to even touch them. But not the sisters. The sisters taught me right away that we would go out and find these members of our community and sit with them and just engage in conversation and listen. And quite often at the end of those conversations, they would ask for a hug because they just hadn't had any contact with people. And the sisters always said yes. So that's when I knew that I'd found my purpose and my reason for joining the order. And at the time, there was the order had grown to, in its heyday, probably about 20 or 30 members in San Francisco. There was an order that popped up in Sydney, Australia, and that was basically it. And then by the time I joined, the sisters had dropped down to about five active members in the 80s in San Francisco, the late 80s. And um, it was a different group. We still had a lot of work to do. People weren't 
quite as accepting of us as they are now. They were suspicious. They thought that, because there was a, a desire to be sort of an assimilationist community. People used to think, well, you know, we're gay, but we're just like you, you know, like, and I was that way too. I was like, I'm not any different from you just because I'm gay. I didn't, we thought that was the way to get acceptance. And what the sisters taught me was that the, my civil rights are mine and I don't have to ask for them. I, have, I should demand them. They're already there. I just have to make sure that I get them. So as the order started to grow and pop up in other places, people became more aware of the good work that the sisters do. And in my 33 years or whatever it is now, it's been really inspiring to see orders pop up in places like Lafayette, Indiana, or even in Michigan or around the Bible Belt and all over the country finding people and now all over the world finding people who share a similar passion and mission we're all like one giant huge intertwined family of uh, people who care about other people and we look around our communities and see what needs to be done and how we can best be of service and we all do it Sister Roma represents a group whose work I have been lucky enough to learn a lot about whilst visiting California. I had had the fortune to spend much of my second weekend in San Francisco with a gaggle of the sisters, including Sister Purdue, who runs the aforementioned LGBTQ center at Purdue University, not the same spelling, and her partner, Sister Tara Newhall. Sister Tara has been a postulant sister for six months which is probably best described as being a sister in training. One can remain a postulant for between six months to one year. Tara is a born and raised Californian, so was conscientious of the history of the sisters prior to her direct involvement with them. Tara's personal history regarding how she came to join the sisters is one which piqued my interest with regards to her feelings of kinship with her fellow sisters. At one point in her life, Tara was homeless, a drug addict and a sex addict, and was holding a sign asking for change when a San Francisco sister greeted her and provided her with the essential supplies in order to allow her to survive. Touched by this act of kindness, when Tara eventually moved to Indiana and spotted a group of sisters at a local Pride event, she saw joining the sisters as an opportunity to pay back that kindness and pay it forward. Outside of her work with the sisters, Tara also works in the education and care sector with physically and developmentally disabled youth. So how have your experiences, both personally and as part of the sisters, shaped your feelings about what the term family represents for queer communities? So for me, the term family um before I had even joined the sisters or was aware of the sisters, uh, the term family was very tricky and dangerous to me. Um, from my experience, the term family meant obligations to people that could be poisonous to you. Um, and that terrified me that I was forever tethered to these people that caused me harm. They caused me pain, um, not specifically physical, but emotional and, and just, just things that I experienced in my life and my developmental years that weren't fair for anyone to go through. Yet, as I grew up, I was supposed to love these people. Um, so my idea of family was very, very dark and muddy. Um, and I felt kind of trapped in that, in that world of, of, again, obligation to these people that have caused me harm. Now, when I 
grew into my own as a queer person, and I left behind the folks that I called my family. Um, and of course, when I joined the sisters, I realized that since I had left those people behind, um, there was kind of a void. There was something missing. And as much as, you know, you shouldn't be missing people that hurt you, that was kind of a factor. I really missed people that hurt me, not just those people specifically, but having those people, having that tight knit, um, small private community of people that were there for you in certain times. Um, so I needed to fill that hole. Um, but I'm um, sorry. So, um, when I met the sisters, uh, one of the questions they'd asked me in my Q and a to join the sisters, um, was what do you want to get out of the sisters? And that was a quick and easy answer for me. And that was family. I wanted to finally have that, that family. Um, and I noticed that I was joining an organization and a group of people that was already in a lot of ways, super dysfunctional in a, <laughs> in a lot of aspects. Uh, there were a lot of, um, little drama things going on, but you know, little tiny, um, you know, tips between this sister, that sister differences in opinion, differences in idea or, um, foresight in general. Um, but I kind of accepted that you're not going to find a perfect family, even if you pick it. Um, so what I noticed traditionally being family, it can be tricky, it can be scary and it can make you feel like you're forced to put up with and put yourself through, um, situations with people that really don't have your best interests in mind all the time, um, versus this new version of family that I've discovered. And that is, you know, just as, <laughs> just as, just as, uh, dangerous as the original sometimes, um, but at the same time, there's no one forcing you to stay with those people. You know, there is no one forcing you. If any of those people cause you harm, can you really consider them family? Um, so yeah, the, so there's a lot of similarities. It's a lot of differences. How do you think queer family dynamics differ, both positively and negatively, from biological or normatively adopted families? So how are maternal and paternal roles queered in that sense? Um, yeah, uh, so that's that's a really fun one. Um, so I kind of did go into that a bit earlier. Um, so they are similar and they differ. Um, again, when it comes to the obligation, um, for example, um, there are people in my family that raised me um, that I had discovered were poisonous for me. Now, if I wanted to cut that person out and no no longer associate with that person, that would have a I would there would be a big backlash from the rest of the family. Um, you know, I would be you know disloyal to the family. Um, I would be seen as um, somebody that doesn't love my family, and that just doesn't that just sound terrible. That just sounds awful. And it sounds like you're such a bad person, but you are hurting. You're, you're, you know, you are emotionally bleeding out and you shouldn't have to put, put yourself through that. Um, now, whereas I think in a queer family, you know, we don't always make the right decisions when it comes to choosing our family. I've seen a lot of situations play out where someone thought they had chosen this tight knit, perfect family where one person was actually kind of doing them dirty behind closed doors. And you have every right to say goodbye to that person. There is no blood tie. There is no um, requirement. There is no stigma if you decide that you don't want to associate with that person anymore. Um, so there's a bit of, of freedom. 
um, to uh, stay connected with certain people. If you do discover things are going negatively for you in your own life, you get to do this one time. <laughs> you should be able to, to cut out negative things, you know, um, when necessary. Um, so some similarities are, I guess, again, um, the danger aspect, but the difference is you're able to take care of it in a different way. You're able to look out for yourself in a different way. Um, where, and also if I decided to cut out one person from my chosen family, the rest of my chosen family isn't going, I don't believe they're not going to come for me for looking out for myself. As a matter of fact, they might hear my perspective and they might share some of that opinion. They might, you know, help you stay on top of continuing without that person. Um, now when you talk about paternal and maternal, that part is so fun for me. Um, so my sister mother, um, my sister mother is uh, sister Purdue and, uh, she is a lovely vessel most of the time. And with that being said, I, um, don't have uh, a mother in my family. Um, I don't have, I don't come from a family that has a set mother. Um, I lost my mother at a pretty early age, so I wasn't familiar with that idea. And I noticed that when I was in college, I would befriend these older women. Um, and I realize now that it's because I was hungry for a mother or a figure. Um, now I met my sister, mother Purdue and the way she taught me to do sister face. Um, one of my struggles was actually gluing down my eyebrows. I could not glue down my eyebrows. These things are caterpillars. Like it is not, they move around like caterpillars. So there's no making them stay still. Um, now this one first try just verbally instructed me and actually did eyebrows in front of me and I was able to do it first try and I, um, her eyebrows are very short so um, I don't think she understood what she was you know uh, getting into but uh, again it was successful um, but for someone to sit down and have this kind of um, teaching moment in uh, um, a feminine subject was something that I was longing for you know for a very long time um, so that maternal aspect just because that person isn't my mother um, biologically or even from some weird family structure like stepmother or whatever else happens um, it still was as effective I think as if my biological mother had taught me those things you know I know a lot of uh, drag queens they learn their makeup skills and their you know a lot of their ideas of fashion first from their mother um, of course very supportive mothers I think are known for doing that um, but I got to have that through somebody that I chose um, and I think it was just as effective uh, but paternally, when it comes to um, a father figure, um, there are a lot of um, uh, like gay men in the uh, drag community, I think, that had it really rough previously um, in, in the last couple decades. They had it really, really rough. Things were not as easily and accessible as they are now. And I think that they're very willing and happy to jump in and be that kind of father figure that they never got to experience because it wasn't it wasn't. It wasn't so easy back then, um, and you could you could openly share and express love for a, a subject like drag or sistery or sistering. Um, you can openly express those um, interests today. I don't think you could have expressed those things so openly in the community. I really really anywhere um, twenty years ago. Um, so I think it's this new light and this new freedom to to dive into that world has led to people wanting to create a better experience for the younger generation. Um, so I'm really thankful for that. You know, that, that really has nothing to do with me doing anything, but I really do enjoy the fact that that, that, uh, dynamic exists.
Throughout my interviews with Gary, Roma, and Tara, I continually found myself coming back to Kath Weston's observation of those early anthropological conceptions of what defines kinship. In particular, that what was genuine was not subject to change. Tara's words about how toxicity could be found in chosen families, but that you could choose to distance yourself from that toxicity, resonated with me personally. There is a relief to be found in the freedom of that, of knowing that you are not obligated to tie yourselves to those who may, directly or indirectly, seek to harm you. There is, of course, an obsession with authenticity when it comes to queerness, a question of what is real, what is genuine, that is used to regulate and discipline queer bodies. We see this in the way that gender and sexuality, as well as aesthetic presentation, are expected to align with predetermined and pre-approved categories. The truth is, for many queer individuals, our early experiences of kinship were subject to change. We experienced familial love that was conditional, and those conditions were heterosexuality or identification with assigned gender at birth. Whether we were pushed away from those families, chose to step away from them, or did in fact experience familial support in response to our coming out, there is nothing inauthentic in the formation of familial ties outside of the realms of biology or normative adoption. Shared experiences help foster empathy, understanding, and even thinking back to our interview with Carrie Davis in episode 1, her comments about the comfort found in spending time with people who can commiserate with you in your troubles also seem pertinent. Some of us have had the fortune to be born to our mothers, our fathers, the person who will nurture and endeavour to protect us unconditionally. Some of us have to go the long way round to find that person or those people. Some of us make the choice to become what we were denied when we see others who need what we needed long ago. Familial love is a kindness, a selflessness which is invaluable in the often hostile world we live in. When a group of people are considerate, respectful and nurturing towards one another, it feels counterproductive to try and police what a family is or isn't supposed to look like. For many of us, life is just too short to say no to the love we are offered by the people we love in turn. For many of us, the families we choose are the families we needed in order to learn how to thrive. Thank you once again for listening to... An for listening to and supporting the Slash Queer podcast. This episode was edited by Charles Mackamson and scripted and produced by me, Georgie Williams. A very special thanks to Gary Wasden and the staff of the Leather Archives and Museum in Chicago, as well as the many Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence that I have had the fortune to talk to. In particular, Sister Roma and Sister Tara Newhall. Many thanks for your interviews and insight. An additional thanks specifically to Sister Purdue from the LGBTQ Plus Centre at Purdue University. Thank you so very much for all you have done for this podcast, and I look forward to sharing your interview in the next episode. This episode was recorded on location in Chicago, Illinois, and San Francisco, California. Music in this episode was composed by Kevin McLeod. 
If you enjoyed this episode or have any feedback, please get in touch on Instagram or Twitter at at slash queer. That's at S-L-A-S-H queer. Or email us at slash queer at outlook.com. Once again, until next time, stay kind, stay radical, and stay queer. Question mark. <laughs> There's a lot of, like, unanswered questions. And I haven't asked any of them yet.